Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Warner Brothers Television Group Chairman Channing Dungy about her hopes for a Harry Potter drama series and concerns over a US writer's strike. And from the Ink Factory's Michelle Wolkoff, Waterside Studios' Jeff Norton, Banerjee's James Townley, Nevis's Annie Fernandez and Out TV's Philip Webb about the trends they see shaping the international TV industry next year. All live from Content London 2022. C21's Content London took place this week, with over 3,000 delegates and 230 speakers descending on the UK capital for the sellout world-leading development marketplace and conference's 10th anniversary. Senior executives, producers, writers and talent from all around the world convened at the King's Place Conference Centre and St Pancras Renaissance Hotel to get a glimpse of the hottest new shows, discuss the trends and issues they see shaping the industry in 2023, strike up co-production relationships, score commissions and simply catch up with colleagues they may have only seen over Zoom in recent years. Among them were Michelle Wolkoff, creative director of The Night Manager and The Little Drummer Girl producer The Ink Factory, Jeff Norton, head of new chorus entertainment scripted outfit Waterside Studios, Banerjee, global head of content development James Townley, Annie Fernandez, co-founder of Copenhagen, Stockholm and London-based producer Nevis, and Philip Webb, chief operating officer of Canadian LGBTQ plus network OutTV. They all spoke to me live at the event about the projects and topics top of mind for them right now and the challenges and opportunities they see in the coming 12 months. We'll be hearing from them in a moment. But first, among the keynote speakers was Warner Brothers Television Group Chairman Channing Dungy, who joined C21 Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson to talk about her tenure so far at the US studio and where she's aiming to take the business next, as well as her hopes for a Harry Potter drama series and concerns over a US writer's strike. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and, and, and um, this is Channing's first um, appointment in this new um, enhanced role, so thanks ever so much for coming to Content London to, to share it with us and to share your vision of what, of, of what the challenges are and what the opportunities are ahead. I think maybe sort of the, before we sort of jump into it, it would be really good to sort of set the scene in terms of like the, the structure of, uh, uh, of, of the new organisation and how you have sort of programmed it for success. Uh, Warner Brothers Television Group actually consists of three different companies. Um, There's the Scripted Group, which is run by Brett Paul. He's the president of Scripted. The Unscripted Group, which is run by Mike Darnell. Some of you might have heard Mike here yesterday. And the Animation Group, which is overseen by Sam Register. What has surprised you about the role and uh, uh, and and the shows and the people that you've worked with? Is it what you expected it to be? And when you went into it, what was the brief and what was the mission? So, uh, coming into it for me, I you know I spent the last um, the bulk of my career on the platform side, right? I was at ABC for a lot of years, 15 years altogether, and um, running the entertainment group for the last part of that time. And then I went over to Netflix, and so. For me, coming over to the studio was a great opportunity because what was exciting for me at that point was the ability to 
respond to an idea and feel like, okay, now we're gonna find the right home for this idea. You know, when you're working for the platform, you always have to think about, these are our needs, this is the slate, like, you know, you might hear an idea and think, oh, that's fantastic, but you just don't have room for it. You know, whereas at the studio, if you believe in the idea and you're excited about the auspices, then you figure out, okay, then we're gonna find a home for this. And one of the things that we've done kind of successfully at Warner Brothers is, if something doesn't work out at the first home, then we find another home for it. You know, we had Manifest, for example, uh, very successfully on NBC for three seasons, and then they ultimately decided not to move forward, and we were able to pivot that show over to Netflix and keep it going. So that, for me, was kind of coming into the studio, the mandate was to look at the slate, um, see where we were, see where we were working, and then kind of continue to develop and broaden those relationships. And I would say across the group, probably 75, 80% of our slate is scripted, and then um, about 10% is uh, unscripted, and 10% is animation. And I think one of the ambitions, particularly now, is to continue to grow both of those businesses even more broadly. And like, particularly now is an interesting couple of words, isn't it? Because like before the, 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 the pandemic, and all of the anxiety that that, that, that brought around and, 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 and the structural change in the content business as well during that period of time. So it has tr really changed yes. dramatically. Um, how is it different and what do you think that whole experience uh, taught you about how you need to do things differently coming out of a, a very, very difficult time and try and reset the bar to move forward? Is anything different? I mean, well, first of all, kind of coming out of the pandemic, production itself was such a challenge at the beginning. And certainly, we were able to get um, a lot of our unscripted shows up and running first. Uh, and then sort of scripted came behind. I think we've learned a lot more about what we can and cannot do and sort of what things are essential to be done on set, what things can be done remotely, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I do, I do feel like there was there were a feeling before the pandemic that every meeting had to be in person, that everything had to happen, you know, uh, you know, IRL as they say, and the you know figuring out how actually things can be done remotely and on Zoom has really saved a lot of time in in some cases, which is which is fantastic. I think that this has been such a very interesting period these last two years. There's been so much change and so much transition, not just with the pandemic, but also even you know this year. Um, you know, I think about it as sort of like the great Netflix, Netflix correction that happened at the beginning of this year where now people are looking differently at what defines success, um, looking differently at, you know, it's not just about um, acquiring subscribers, for example. And uh, I think the cost of productions, people are taking a much harder look at than they have before. Um, we were in a little bit of a spending bubble for Didn't a while there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think it's good. I think things are settling back down in, in ways that are, that are helpful and more productive. And, you know, for me, I feel like there are shows that are done for a lower budget. There are shows that are done in the middle, and then there are shows that are, you know, sort of big budget FX extravaganzas. I think there was a, a feeling for a while that everything, you know, if it wasn't streaming, had kind of bumped things up where it felt like, well, if you're not spending, you know, 10 million an hour on this, um, you know, you're not doing your job. And it's like, you, you, it doesn't take that to make a great show, right? And I think that when we had to figure out how to do certain things differently during the pandemic, that underscored that. I think that you, you know, you see the success of a show like Abbott Elementary and Broadcast, which we do for a broadcast budget for a broadcast network, and yet it is something that has really penetrated, and so many people are loving that show. And it is, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a high price tag for a show to be terrific. 
just looking across the slate that, that, that you have at the moment and, and, and the one that will take you forward over the next couple of years, what, what sort of defines it? Are there any things that link what you're doing in, in Unscripted and in drama? And are you making shows for a different audience um, post-pandemic or, or, or is it the same group of people watching in the same way as they were before? I don't know that it's necessarily the audience is different post-pandemic. I think that what you're discovering, you know, and there's been a lot of people talking a lot about how much content there is, and there is. I mean, I think it's actually a really exciting time to be a producer of content because there are so many outlets and so many platforms and so many different ways to have your story told. I do feel like you have to have an audience for your show that is sort of like the evangelizing audience for that show, right? The people who love it, who talk about it, who tweet about it, who are, you know, and I think you have to kind of understand who that core audience is and make sure that you are not going to disappoint that audience in the way that you're telling the story. And then I think if you find that evangelizing core audience that is, that is connected to it, then hopefully word spreads and your show resonates with a broader, a broader audience. But I feel like things generally don't work if you try to say, I want this to appeal to everyone, because then you're sort of sanding off the edges of the storytelling. And in terms of what my personal mandate is, you know, I'm very proud of the roster of talent that we have. For me, I really want the programming that we make to reflect America in a, as diverse and inclusive a, a, a landscape and a community as it actually is. And for me, part of that comes from having people telling the stories behind the camera, in front of the camera, who can speak authentically to that audience. And you know, I think we've done a great job with that thus far, and I think there's even more that we can do moving forward. It hasn't been smooth, plain sailing, though, has it, the last couple of years? It's, there's been a, a lot of um, noise around sort of, you know, the, the integration of the businesses, and I, and I know that there's been some bumps, and certainly some of the relationships with some of the producers that have been covered in the press has, has seemed to be challenging, particularly the communicating about what you were looking for and how, and, and, and there was some frustration with, um, particularly, I think, the unscripted community feeling that they didn't, necessarily know what, what you were looking for. How have you balanced the sort of the, the relationships and come through what must have been a very stressful time in trying to bring together these businesses and, and, and have a clear programming strategy? Do you feel you've got there now? And what were the things that got in the way uh, to getting there? I think we do have a very clear programming strategy. You know, I think, look, as the studio, it is, it's not necessarily for us to say, like, this is our mandate, right? We are serving a you know, tremendous amount of, of buyers. You know, we have more than 125 shows on more than 30 platforms. So that's a lot of different um, buyers that you're trying to work with. It's a lot of different needs that you're trying to fulfill. And I think, you know, for me, it all comes down to sort of the creative and the creative relationships. And one of the things that I tried to do in first coming into the role is really sit down with all of our talent and talk about sort of where they are, what do they want to do, what are their ambitions, how do we help grow that. And certainly the first part of my journey at, at Warner's has been focused on the scripted side because that is such a big part of the business. And I'm now starting to get my arms more and more around the unscripted space and the animation space. And what's exciting is, is the diversity of the type of content that we we have it's been it's been good and certainly the you know the company's been through a lot of transition you know we have entirely new management you know Warner Brothers Discovery um, was formed in April of this year so there still is you know we're still kind of going through the aftershocks of a merger that big but I think at this point you know things are starting to settle down and move forward in a really good way let's talk about some of the shows you're the most proud of and some of the things that are coming up what if, when you look down the line 
uh, at some of the new stuff and some of the things that are working well for you, what, what, what do you back the most and what elements make them successful, do you think? Could you pick out two or three things that really push the buttons properly for you? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it, to me, it's always about that creative voice and vision, right? And when I think about, for example, in the scripted space, you know, Abbott Elementary, which came out of the gate really, really strong for us. Quinta Brunson was inspired by her mom's life as a public school teacher and brought a lot of that to the storytelling. And it's really well written, it's really funny, and we you know, came away from our freshman season with three Emmy Awards, which was fantastic. Um, sort of the same is, is the, the collaboration on Ted Lasso with uh, you know, Bill Lawrence and Jason Sudeikis. And again, you know, that was a show, we pitched it everywhere, and no one bought it, with the exception of Apple. It was like sort of the little show that could. And it exploded on the scene, really in a great way for us. You know, it kind of really picked up and, and, and took flight during the pandemic, when I think people were sort of scared and, and feeling down. And that was a show that kind of encouraged everybody to believe and um, has, has really resonated for us. Um, you know, in the, in the unscripted space, you know, we're really proud of the continued success of Bachelor, really proud of the continued success of The Voice, you know, and then looking forward to bringing new formats over. We have The Wheel that's about to launch in the States. Um, they're going to sort of strip it over the two weeks between Christmas and New Year's, which we're excited about giving people the opportunity to experience that show. I think it'll be really good. And in animation, you know, one of the interesting things that's exciting for me at this moment, the the approach of sort of the previous management was much more like everything has to stay in-house. We don't want anything to go outside. And David Zaslav's been much more open to our um, exploring all of our animated IP and being able to do it on different platforms. Certainly HBO Max is going to be our first stop, but in, you know, we just uh, are in the process of closing a big deal with Amazon, for example, that's going to feature some of our DC branded content in animation, which is going to be really exciting for us and just give the opportunity for more of that content to be um, explored and enjoyed by the audience. And, and HBO Max being your first stop, you know, I think that is clearly a, a, a cornerstone of, a, of the mission. I think you currently have 35 scripted series, unscripted and animation projects with, with, that, with, with that brand. Um, can we talk a little bit, first of all, about the shows that are going there, the upcoming titles and the, and the ones that are returning through that relationship, and, and then maybe extend that into what that means about how you can work with other people as well. Sure. How, how far beyond the vertically integrated story will, will we see you going in the future? But maybe start a little bit with the, the upcoming stuff for HBO Max and why. Yeah, I mean, look, we, I, I think it, it really is kind of like our, our first stop in a way, but it's, it's not even, it, I feel like it's more seamless than that. I spend a lot of time talking with Casey Bloys, who oversees HBO and HBO Max, and uh, you know, his head of scripted, Sarah Aubrey, mine, Clancy Collins-White. We talk very regularly about sort of what their needs are, what we have coming down the pike, so that we kind of design things to go to Max and then decide, okay, you know, this is something that doesn't feel like it necessarily fits. So it's not even a question of us like pitching something and then they say no and we move on. We've already kind of designed, like these are the things that we know we want to do together and then these are the things that we think we're going to do outside. And that actually works, works better and it also works better for the talent because it doesn't feel like um, this has been 
passed on or this has been, you know, it's more um, mm, It's not something that I didn't want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Because they, they have programming needs and we want to fill those needs and be their, be their top supplier. And, you know, when it's something like the flight attendant, you know, which was a wonderful collaboration between all of us. Um, we have Sex Lives of College Girls, the second season, which just launched, which is a tremendous amount of fun. Um, we just started production on something called The Girls on the Bus, which we're doing with Greg Berlanti, and it stars Melissa Benoist, um, with whom we did Supergirl. Um, Carla Gugino also stars in it, and it's uh, inspired by Amy Chozik's book um, that was written as she was a female journalist covering Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, it's not so much a political show, though, as it is a show about uh, female friendship, and we're, we're really excited about that. That just started production in New York. We are um, in pre-production on something called More, um, again, with Greg Berlanti, and this is, um, this is something that's a little bit more of a family soap, um, sort of loosely inspired by the Kardashians, so uh, it follows a Latinx family who are in the spotlight in that way. We, we just finished uh, Dead Boy Detectives for HBO Max, which is, uh, comes from the uh, little bit of the universe of Doom Patrol and Sandman. And that is Steve Yaki, with whom we did The Flight Attendant as well, is doing that for us. We have tremendous relationships. You know, we work a lot with Apple. Um, we just closed a big new deal with Amazon, um, Just Cause, that Scarlett Johansson is going to be top lining and producing, which we're really excited about. And um, we do a lot with Netflix. They've been a tremendous partner for us. And one of the shows that has done really well for us, uh, for them, is You. It was a show that actually started for the first year on Lifetime. Didn't really succeed there. We pivoted it over to Netflix, and it has been a really tremendous success for them. It's not the first time you've moved stuff from terrestrial onto um uh, platform, isn't it? It's quite, quite a nice way of having that opportunity to keep things alive, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how do you think um, about international and specifically co-production? And is uh, Warner open to international co-production in order to, uh, in this instance, uh, lower costs? Or are you open to co-production for other reasons going forward? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's actually something that has come up quite a bit of late. You know, I would say that historically, Warner Brothers was probably the last of the studios to engage in co-productions. It was sort of, you know, Warner Brothers does it, and it, this is the way. And when I was at ABC working across the aisle with Warner Brothers, and we were coming to that point where the broadcast networks were saying, hey, we need to have a piece of something that we're doing, and sort of fighting with Warner Brothers. I remember, you know, conversations that I had with Peter Roth at the time, and it's like, we're not doing it like I'm like well we can't pick your show up we can't get a little percentage of it and you know ultimately Warner's kind of came around to being um, willing to co-produce uh, when you're trying to sell a show to a broadcast network with their in-house studio etc cetera, etc cetera. and we do you know a fair amount of that now you know for example ABC is involved in Abbott Elementary we're the lead studio but they are a co-partner with us on that and the same is um, with uh, Fox on the cleaning lady you know we are um, partnered with them on that. The interesting part about the international co-productions, which is something that has started coming up more and more, you know, and I think as we're all looking to do more and manage costs and figure out ways to continue the pipeline, I think we've been more open to and engaging in those conversations, which is exciting for me. Um, I, I welcome the opportunity to partner, and I think that there's a lot that can be gained by partnering. So it is something that is definitely on the table for us now at this point. Because you do work with everybody, don't you? I mean, I'm just looking at the list of, of shows that you've, that you've got coming up on, 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 on other platforms and other channels, and it is. You know, it's Apple TV, it's Hulu, it's the, C, it's the CW, it's Netflix, it's Amazon. Um, 
how are you finding those conversations um, in, in the current climate? Because uh, they're very different to, to how they probably even were nine months ago, yeah? yeah. What, 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 what do you see as the stress points around the sorts of shows that they all, in their different ways, want to make? And, and what are they saying to you now that they weren't saying to you a year ago about what the, the content requirement is? Well, the thing about it is, is that everything is is really bespoke, right? Like you know, you, we were just talking about Netflix, and we have so many shows that we're doing with Netflix, and each one of those is different. It's not like there's any one specific way. You know, the the um, episode count number is, is always different. The budgets are different. You know, what their specific needs are, are are different. And I think one of the things that we try to do as an independent studio is to meet those needs, you know, and to understand exactly what the buyer is looking for and then figure out how we can best service that. You know, I think that what's been interesting over the past um, couple of years, you know, you've really seen the episode counts continue to slide back, right? You know, it was a point where sort of 13 was the number, then it was 10, and then it was eight, and now it feels like it's six, you know? Uh, so I, I feel like now the drama's between six and eight, which is which is small by American standards. I know internationally that's less of a, of a surprise, but I do think that now between six and eight is the norm, which is fine, but the fewer episodes you do, the fewer episodes you have to amortize the costs across, right? So that does change things and shift things in kind of a fundamental way. I think the other tricky part is in terms of the cast budgets. You know, this expectation now of sort of what you're paying talent in the various roles um, has just continued to increase, which then affects your bottom line, and, and that makes it tricky. You know, I think there was a feeling for a while that you needed to have a certain level of name in order for a show to launch and be successful. And I think the reliance on having at least like one or two pieces of top talent in a, in a show and or the reliance on IP, you know, because people feel like, the platforms feel like, oh, well, if it's already kind of a branded name or it's IP that's known, then we're going to have a little bit more of a chance to get out of the gate. And I'm certainly open to all of that. But I do still feel that series can create stars and series can create IP. So for me, it's always exciting when you find people that are still willing to take that big swing on something that's fresh. Mm. And we have seen that over the last five years, haven't we? Particularly from the US studios, just the extension and the re-extension and the continued extension of these pieces of IP in the franchises. And yes. some of the most exciting stuff that's come out of the, the works in the meantime has been nothing like that at all. You know, like, yeah. Is it time for a change in that respect, do you think? I don't know. When I look at sort of all of our big, biggest successes, particularly in scripted, the majority of them are original IP. And so for me, an original idea is always going to carry more weight than a remake or a reboot. So are we any closer to seeing a Harry Potter television series? The iPod <laughs> ones, oh, that question. Oh, that question. That old question. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the answer is yes, isn't it? It's just when. No? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, the, look, I think there, there's a tremendous amount of ambition for that. And uh, we are, you know, engaged in a number of different conversations. I wish that I could tell you that something was imminent on the horizon. But, you know, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of interest and a lot of passion for it. So absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, what's great is that you see how the audience is so engaged and so ready. You know, we did, um, our unscripted team did a fantastic Return to Hogwarts um, special that we did for HBO last year. And, you know, that resonated so so tremendously, and then we did a quiz show that was sort of um, the Tournament of Houses that Helen Mirren uh, was the, the host for, and you know the audience is ready; they're right, they want to go, and so we're just trying to figure out what the right next step is. And what's your strategy in releasing a full season 
uh, um, for binging as opposed to releasing episodes weekly across a period of time with HBO Max? How, how's that sort of thinking working internally? Because start, we're starting to see it happen a lot more now, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, look, you, you, for, for me personally, I, I like the way that we do it at HBO Max where you drop one or two episodes at the top, get people excited, and then kind of weekly the subsequent episodes come out. Uh, as a viewer and as, as somebody who loves to engage and talk about content, there's something exciting, right? Like we don't do White Lotus for HBO, that's a separate, but you know, for me as a, as a viewer, like I like looking forward to the episodes dropping each week and being you know, uh, able to talk about it with people as it, as it goes. Um, but I think as the studio, you know, we work with one, whatever format, right? Like we do a lot for Netflix, they like to drop everything at once. You know, Apple does a little bit more of the, they usually drop a couple more at the top, like two or three at the top and then weekly. So you know we we did you know we do the content the way that the buyer wants us to do it, and we'll design the episodes in the best way to fit their format. And what's preferable, a limited a limited series or a multi-season series? I mean, they're both great. You know, it kind of just depends on what the idea is. You know, and then you have a limited series like when we did Flight Attendant the first season. It was intended to just be a one and done. We weren't planning to do a second season. And then it, the, it resonated so well with the audience, and HBO Max was like, we'd love to do more if you can come up with a great idea. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I think Steve, Yaki, and Natalie Chaidez did a great job in terms of coming up with a second season that for me was equally as strong as the first and took the character in a totally different um, part of her sobriety journey. And so, you know, that was, that was great. But for me, it's more about like, what is the idea? You know, is this an idea that you feel like has legs and can be something that continues to move forward, or do you feel like it's something where you get to tell the story and it's in its one and done? You know, the limited series is exciting for me because I feel like so many concepts that might have initially been done just as a movie, and then you're, you know, you've only got two hours to tell that giant novel. It's less satisfying because of all the things you have to leave out. And then if you can do that instead as a six-part or an eight-part series, you really get to tell the story in its fullest way. Just talking specifically about a new show, um, it's called Found, and it would be really good to get a sense of sort of the anatomy of the show, where it came from, and why it's important as a guide to why this is a, the sort of thing you would you would green light. You know. Again, for me, it's about the idea, and it's about the auspice and, and sort of their passion for the idea. And this is a show um, that's written by Nkeche Okoro Carroll, who does All American and All American Homecoming for us. And it is an original idea that was inspired for her by the plight of missing people in the United States and an observation that she had made and had been done, doing a lot of reading about, which is that people of color, particularly women of color, don't receive the same amount of media attention and um, sort of investigative drive as you know, particularly missing young white women. And she wanted to kind of bring this to the surface and came up with a really interesting way to go about the story, um, focusing on a crisis PR management executive uh, played by Shanola Hampton, who many of you know from Shameless. She's fantastic. And uh, she herself was a missing child. She was able to save herself and now has gone on and made her career as um, someone who wants to help others and kind of bring this issue to the forefront. And for us, you know, this was something that NK had written on spec 
um, just written on her own. And then we were able to set it up at NBC. They shared her passion for wanting to tell this story. Greg Berlanti and Sarah Schechter are also involved as executive producers. And what I love about this is it is a procedural. It's a case of the week. Each week, we're going to be focusing on a different missing person and then solving it. But then there's a big sort of overarching story that um, involves you know each of our characters have things in their own life and background that we're going to be exploring. And then there's a really interesting twist. The procedural um, part of uh, that, that story is quite interesting, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. procedurals were very much out of fashion for a while. Are they coming back into fashion, do you think? I mean, there was a point at which they were everywhere, right? But I think that sort of a good mystery well told and the satisfaction that you feel as an audience member at the end of that and the play along factor, I don't think that that uh, ever went away. You know, I think that there's still a lot of uh, joy to be found as a, as a viewer in that. And so I think now it's more the bar is a little higher in terms of what people are expecting from their current procedurals. And are you looking at, do you think platforms are looking more towards procedural drama? Because they, they haven't really got into that space so much. Is it, is it something we might see on a Netflix or an Amazon in future? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I feel like the streamers are so, you know, they, they crave the shows that are a little bit more bingey, right? And so the notion that you've got a hook at the end of the episode that makes you want to watch the next one, which doesn't lend itself as quite as well to the procedural story, but I do think that when you think about things that people are binging that were made in broadcast and brought over to streaming, a lot of those are those sort of repeatable shows. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, it'll be interesting to see as development continues if they start to do more yeah, of those in-house originals. Amazon just picked up Neighbors, I think, or something. Yeah, like right. That. I did see that. Yes. yes. Um, question on the iPad. Um, what kind of investment is Warner Brothers making in the UK scripted production industry alongside this corporate responsibility? It's a really good question. I mean, you know, we produce quite a few shows here in the UK. You know, we do Sandman here, we do Pennyworth here, um, Dead Boy Detectives is shooting partially here. Uh, you, we just shot this past season. You know, so for us, it's kind of more about where is the right place for us to shoot in terms of the story? You know, certainly we have huge production facilities at Leavesden, which is they are fantastic. I actually just went over to see those this summer, which was my first time, and it was really, really impressive. Um, working here has been great for us, and we have a lot of partnerships. I don't know specifically in terms of what the financial investment that Warner Brothers Discovery is making, but I do know that this is going to continue to be a place where we will do a lot of work. Just talking more broadly now about what's going to happen over the next year, just to see if we can try and get some context for, for what you think are going to be the threats and opportunities. Clearly, there's lots of them. Mm. And um, the, year's got, the, the world's going to be very different probably in 12 months' time to, to, to how it is now. What, what challenges do you see on the horizon and what are you doing um, to try and deal with them right now, how do you think the 23 is going to go? Do you, you're changing your strategy, you're changing your approach, you're changing your investment? Well, I mean, one of the biggest stresses for us coming up in 2023 is the potential strikes. You know, I think um, directors, maybe not so much writers. The writer strike is a very real threat that I think uh, is something that we're planning for and, and trying to um, be prepared for. You know, I, I would love to see us avoid a strike. I think that there are some very real um, issues that need to be resolved. And if we can try to find a way to resolve them peacefully in advance of a strike, that would be tremendous. That's my hope. But uh, we have to be, you know, be prepared for the, for the worst. I think in terms of kind of the broader climate and the industry in general, you know, I think that the big topic right now is managing costs, right? And 
I think what 2022 has showed us in terms of what's happened with the you know, sort of um, stock market is, you know, in terms of how the entertainment companies are valued, what they're looking for in terms of how they define success, and you know, all of that is sort of put pressure yeah. on the costs. And for us, it's about wanting to tell great stories for the audience and figuring out, okay, then what are we going to be doing differently in order to not compromise on the stories that we're telling, but still do it in a way that feels fiscally responsible. And again, I think that there were, um, we were coming out of an era where things were unnecessarily inflated. And so now it's about kind of bringing that stuff back down and, and just being more responsible about how we do things and whether that means you know, cross-boarding a show so that we can save on locations and time, which requires you to be a little bit more prepared in advance with the scripted material. You know, that's one of the things that we look at a lot. You know, are there ways for us to um, make other adjustments in, in terms of how we shoot, you know, looking for places where we get a production incentive to, to film there? Um, we're, we're kind of looking at everything we can because I think at the end of the day, quality for us is the most important thing. I mean, that's job one. We want to make sure that the stories that we tell are, are well told and deliver for the audience. And so figuring out how we can continue to do that in more financially responsible ways. You know, and some of that may also involve, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, co-productions, figuring out how we can um, partner with other people in order to tell the same kind of great stories. And are you looking for stories in different places going forward? Because, you know, the, the, there are stories. It, it is now commonplace for a story to come from anywhere, yeah, yeah. which is great. Yeah. So uh, what, what are you doing strategically to reach out to other markets and other producers? It, it, are there fresh initiatives that are taking you, you into new places, or, or is that yet to come? So we don't necessarily have in place inter, uh, you know, initiatives that reach out internationally, right? We've been doing a lot domestically in terms of trying to bring more people to the forefront that have traditionally not had their stories told. And you know, this is about making sure that our roster of talent includes people from sort of all races, all backgrounds, and you know, giving them the opportunity to have their voices be heard. And some of that has involved outreach to, you know, even at like the college level and the grad school level and trying to say, okay, you know, here's somebody whose voice we really like and how can we help maybe pair them up with a more experienced showrunner and give them that opportunity to learn and grow. And um, those kinds of mentorship programs are really important to us. A year from now, what would you like to have achieved? What, looking back this time next year, are there two or three things that you really want to have delivered? And is there anything standing in the way of you doing that? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, we already talked about Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's in the next 12 months. <laughs> no, great. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But the... Uh, Look, I think it, it, it's so hard to, to quantify and say, like, this is the one thing, right? Because it's, at the end of the day, I want to I wanna make great shows. And when you do, you know, for, for us this past year at the Emmys, you know, for, for Abbott Elementary to get recognized the way that it did, for Ted Lasso the year before and this year, but coming out of the freshman year and feeling like, wow, oh, you know, I mean, those awards and accolades are great, right? And that feels like, okay, we've done something that creatively our peers are celebrating and excited about. But I get just as excited when I'm sort of looking on social media and seeing how people are doing countdowns for Sex Lies of College Girls 
girls, you know, like anticipating the return of that, you know, you that we were just talking about when the when the teaser trailer dropped for that and people on the internet went bananas, you know, um, when we talked about Manifest coming over and how the, you know, everyone was like on 828 day, you know, people were really excited. I mean, for me, it's much more thrilling when I feel like we've delivered something to the audience that they can't stop talking about, that they are, you know, engaged and excited about. So I think if you were asking me what's my goal for the next year is to have two or three more shows that really hit that way and that resonate and get people talking. That, that to me, is the best definition of success. Cool. Well, thank you for coming all this way and talking so frankly about uh, the mission, and we wish you all the best success with it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give Channing a big round of applause. Warner Brothers Television Group Chairman Channing Dungy speaking with David Jenkinson. Now here's the Ink Factory's Michelle Wolkoff and Waterside Studios' Jeff Norton. I've been working with the Ink Factory for probably about five years and recently took over the creative director role, which has been pretty exciting because it's giving me more of a worldview perspective and look at the company as a whole, which is why I'm here. Um, and it's great to be in an environment where I think we're finally talking to so many of our colleagues that we haven't been able to over the past couple of years. In some ways, we've been working in our own Zoom bubble of developing and, and thinking about what our where our projects would sit, and now it's a good opportunity to really be out there and, and talking about that. And the Ink Factory, you know, we have, um, we're very fortunate to be working with the John Le Carre IP, and um, so much of what we're doing now in a new initiative is trying to think about the IP more holistically and look at different ways where we can be um, adaptive and finding um, more returning series and also going into local markets and um, doing a lot more with the IP than we have in the past. So as you say, you were promoted quite recently to, to your new sort of global role, but uh, there was also some, some news that came out of the company this week. Obviously, everyone knows about the, the night manager and, and uh, the little drummer girl, you know, huge shows that you've had there, but there's another one as well that you're developing and going to be bringing to market soon. So that's The Most Wanted Man that we're doing in Germany, and it's about probably, I want to say, 10 years since the movie had been done, but the opportunity here is to look at a uh, TV series in a returning way um, from the German market, but with a global international appeal. So mostly, I think, multi-language, but set in Germany, and we have amazing partners in Amusement Park. <laughs> Who, um, and Oscar Sutherland, who will be our showrunner and uh, creator. So just getting that underway. And how are you going to be taking that show out to market? Because um, with those two prior series, The Night Manager, The Little Drummer Girl, uh, you worked with Endeavor. Endeavor's now part of CJ E&M and has now become fifth season. I think they, they back the Ink Factory in, in, in uh, some capacity as well. So are you using the same model to, to, to take this new series to market? I mean, they are our partners, and in terms of sales, very much so, but I think there's also, um, and they will always be involved in um, putting those deals together for us, but I think at the same time, it's finding the right partners, and those can come at any point in the process. It doesn't need to be a, um, uh, this is the moment we're going to take it out, let's have these conversations, we're going to start really working closely with Oscar on the creative right now, and but we can find a partner at any point in the process, whatever feels best for the project. Jeff, how about yourself? It's, a, it's a, been a big year of change for you. Previously at Awesome Media, and then set up your own production company, Dominion, and, and, and now part of Chorus. 
Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been a ride, and I still catch myself saying last year when I really mean 2019. Um, but um, in a quick nutshell, I set up Dominion of Drama very early in the pandemic, in, in, um, in fact, March 1st of 2020, um, really focused on uh, uh, developing and incubating uh, not only projects that I originated, but also third-party IP. And then just a few months ago, did a deal with Chorus Entertainment. And for the listeners that don't know Chorus, Chorus is Canada's largest pure play media company, uh, depending on the night, the number one or number two broadcaster, uh, about 30 different specialty channels, radio assets, and of course, Nelvana, which is a, a venerable, now 50-year-old animation studio. And so the deal that we've done brings me in-house as the head of Waterside Studios, which is our live action scripted studio. Uh, we're not a physical production company, so what we do is we, we, we work with IP, we work with creators and writers, and we then work in partnership with independent producers, by and large in Canada, but also global. In fact, one of the things I'm doing here is putting together a number of co-productions. And really what we're trying to do is, is take primarily books to screen. We don't have the, the, the benefit of someone like uh, uh, a John le Carre in-house. Uh, I'm, obviously, I'm very jealous of the Ink Factory's uh, uh, auspices, um, but what we try and do is, is find incredible books and incredible stories and then package those in a way we think will delight audiences. And what are some of the challenges that you both encounter in the business at the moment? Getting hold of IP is, is one of those for those that are not lucky enough to have it, but you know, what are some of the other challenges? There's obviously a lot of pressure on costs and, and the economic environment that we're in. You know, People looking ahead to 2023 are concerned about how that's going to play out. I think, you know, what, what I've observed, and certainly on the IP side, you know, a, a lot of your listeners may know me more as an author than, than even a producer, and I find I've got a good relationship with the publishers and, and with the agents, and, and in many cases directly with authors. So that's very, very helpful. But then in terms of the challenges, what I'm finding is you've got an upward pressure on costs and a downward pressure on pricing. And so you have to be clever and you have to be very nimble to try and find a way to carve out a margin. And I think economically, that's gonna be the biggest challenge for everybody in our, in our business, is if there's downward pressure on the pricing, but your costs are only gonna go up, well, who's getting squeezed? And often ends up being the producer. And so I think what we're trying to do is be very mindful and thoughtful about how do we offlay as much risk as possible. That's probably co-production. Uh, we do have the benefit of being part of a, a larger media company, so there are broadcast assets uh, where we can, um, you know, I'm, I'm a seller, not a buyer, so I still have to go back and, and, and sell to our colleagues on the broadcast side. But anything we can do that lowers the overall cost while making sure that there's great quality, I think is going to put producers and, and studios in good stead. And I would say on the selling side, that's one of the challenges because it's when is the right time to sell the project. I think we all love having the partnerships involved when you have your broadcaster, but you need to have this, that same shared vision of a project. And when you're adapting IP, there's always that question of, well, we would do it this way or we would do it that way and making sure that the vision is protected. So when is the right time to find the buyer and how to find that buyer, I think, is one of the challenges. And for me, I, would, I always go back to the, the finding the right writer the, who can adapt, but also being able to honor the material while also having a vision and ambition for the project as well, because going with just a straight adaptation isn't always the most creative way to sustain TV, to sustain storytelling, and um, they're different mediums, so they need to have a different um, approach to them. So, um, And with today, a lot of writers and good writers are busy and trying to find writers that commissioners will, will have the confidence that they can see through 
the whole show and hold that together. I mean, you're in very high-end premium uh, drama, so I mean, is, is there any sort of sense, though, that, as I say, the sort of the budgetary pressures are, are kind of, you know, changing some of the discussions there and, and making that a little bit harder? I think so, um, but I, I also think that it's, you know, we've been able to be flexible in how to approach the budgets because also within working in the United, in the States as well as here, there's other budgets that just are much higher, so you kind of have to know where you fit for the type of show you're making and be, um, and the, our company has always been very um, practical in that approach, right? Delivering on what the promises of of that show. Um, and yeah, managing actor costs, that's always hard, but actors and scripts are what make the show. So, yeah, spending in the right places. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you have to be really tactical about it. The thing is, obviously, working backwards from the audience, though, is the audience doesn't care what the budget is, right? They just want an amazing show. And so that, I think that's where the art and the science come together because you have to be able to put things together and put the package together in a way that makes sense economically while also delivering on the audience's expectations have only grown, you know, year on year. And, you know, we've got things like, you know, the new Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, um, their expectations, they've been spoiled, frankly. You know, we've, as an industry, have delivered incredible content to the audience and they don't mind. You know, for them, it's cost them an hour of their time. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the challenge is, is making sure that you're very tactical. I think, Michelle, what you're doing is, is exactly right, being very thoughtful about it. Apart from your own companies, I mean, thinking more broadly about the industry, what have been the really big stories for you in 2022? You know, uh, was it obviously the merger of Warner Brothers Discovery? That was a, a kind of peak of the sort of M&A frenzy that's been going on over the, the, the past kind of five to ten years. But we also had Netflix imminently kind of introducing an ad-supported tier, Disney Plus doing similar kind of thing. I don't know. What are, what are the kind of biggest stories from your point of view? I would add to that where, from the outside, I wasn't aware of how much was changing inside these companies. I think that's also what's happened within an effect of the pandemic is there was a lot more interaction before between colleagues, right, between lunches and coffees. And because that's been limited, you don't hear as much. And then you realize, I mean, I'm surprised at how much is changing over at Amazon. That was one, just to, waiting to see how that gets restructured. Also seeing how, for me, um, how the different divisions work together. I haven't really experienced that seamlessness yet of the international sides of some of the streamers working well with the domestic US side and um, kind of waiting for those uh, opportunities to really allow for the content that I think is coming and is part of our future. Yeah, I think the other thing that I've observed is that the, the, by and large, the bulk of the streaming businesses have now become mature businesses. So they've gone from being incredibly disruptive startups where they'll throw money around because they need to just buy subscribers, basically, to now being run with a proper P&L, a real focus on ROI. The number of conversations I've had with buyers at streamers where they'll talk about the return on investment of the content, that never happened two years ago or three years ago. Um, and in a way, I think, you know, if you're smart about it, and if you're smart about the budgets and you're smart about the packages, actually that plays really well. And I think that reset was probably required and needed. It's, it's, I think it's good for our business, um, but it is a period of adjustment, no, no question. Everything expanded, now it's gonna contract a little, and then it's gonna settle out. So, and 
I think as producers on our end, we have to just focus on what we do, which is the content, which is looking at what are the stories we want to tell, regardless of what people are saying they want, because no one knows what they want until they have it. And there's still a voracious appetite on behalf of the audience. I mean, you know, we've, we've, I think, sadly, I think we've taken a lot of the business away from cinema. But, you know, if you think about the way the audience interacts with what we create and what we make, we've trained them to expect incredible quality, great production values, great storytelling, fantastic writers based on big books and big IP. And they only want more of that. Um, and so even if there's a little bit of a reset from the buyer's perspective, the audience is still demanding it. They are demanding it in slightly different ways, though. I think I think the you know the sort of narrative around the sort of introduction of Netflix's ad streaming tier is is a big one, and the rise of AVOD and and fast channels, the suggestion that household budgets are being squeezed, and uh, amongst the kind of proliferation of SVOD services, audiences are perhaps being a little bit more choosy now, and and the sort of the ad supported model seems to be gaining momentum just as there's a recession coming which obviously will have another impact on that but in terms of the way that you're developing content the fact that advertiser supported models are kind of growing does that feed into your content development in any way and that you think you know content needs to be a bit more ad friendly and less edgy you know, the kind of edgy stuff that the subscription players like Netflix made a virtue of so early on. You know, I think, first of all, I think with, with the, uh, the, the rise of AVOD, I mean, free 99 is an amazing price point. So it's a great deal for the consumer. I think from a development perspective, I just try and focus on fantastic stories um, and then work out a path to market from there. I think there's always a hazard if you work backwards from what, what a platform wants, because to Michelle's point, nobody actually knows what they want. And certainly, buyers are buying today for two or three years from now, in terms of by the time you actually get something made. Um, so I think if you just fo- my, my instinct is focus on fantastic storytelling, and that will shine through, and you'll, you'll find a path to market. Um, I think the only thing I think we will see a little bit more of is writing and hooks. Right? If you look at network television, um, in terms of writing on act breaks and writing in hooks, I think you may see a little bit more of that. Because if there is a natural ad break point, and that's going to be more of the way things are consumed on, a, on, a, on an AVOD platform, you probably want to be mindful of making sure that the audience comes back after the ad break. It's, I, I agree with that completely. It's just going to affect the editors a lot more. Um, there was a story when we did uh, the original Night Manager, and I'm not going to get the specifics correct because it's been a couple of years. but. Um, the way it aired in the UK versus how it aired in the US, it had to be recut and they had to find different breaks because of exactly this question. And it was like one of those, how do we make sure it has that right moment to end on versus um, uh, seeing it all as one hour piece. So I think it's just gonna affect that part of the storytelling, not necessarily the stories we tell. You reference how you're only beginning to realize now about the internal workings of some companies because the industry has been kind of so restricted from, from being able to meet and, and have those kind of casual off-screen conversations. You know, I mean, to what extent do you feel that we are, as a business, sort of getting back to how things were kind of pre-pandemic? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't know if there, there is going to be a, a, a return. I think we're in a new normal. You know, I think, um, I think there's so many things that have changed. I think there's a rise of hybrid working. I'm not sure people are ever going to go into the office five days a week again. 
Um, at the same time, I look around here and it's amazing that you've got so many delegates and people are out here in person. But I do think, I don't know, what do you think, Michelle? I think we're in a new, I think this I also is think uncharted one of, territory. I think one of the other things that changed is that during the pandemic, there were a lot more um, first look deals structured within companies. And so that made each company feel a little bit bigger and directing who they were working with and in some ways more restrictive because it allowed for um, kind of direct relationships. And I think those are starting to go away a little bit, which I think will open things back up. And I, I think those were just some of the accommodations I think made during that time too, which it's, it's who are we going to have our Zooms with today? Um, yeah, it's very hard to have a general Zoom with someone and meet them. What is fantastic, I will say, being based in LA and running a company that's a global company is I'm here for a week with scheduling meetings with writers. They're like, you know, I'd rather do Zoom. I'm like, great, we'll do it next week when I'm back in LA. People aren't opposed to it anymore. Um, and it's easier for some writers. They, they don't have to travel into the city or, you know, and we get to actually have more of that one-on-one -on -one time. But in terms of executive conversations, that's been harder on Zoom. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's hard to have a general because, it, you know, there's something about the way Zoom is set up and you're facing the screen, and you're facing the person you're talking to, that it's really good for task-oriented things. You know, it's great with writers, like, all right, let's, let's crack this, let's get down to business, let's, let's nail this. But I think having a general meeting where you're just exploring the art of the possible, that's harder to do. And in fact, I've, I've actually stopped doing those as Zooms, and I'll do them as telephone calls. Because um, I think there's just something about facing the person eye to eye. And of course, you've got that weird thing about where do you look, and where's the camera, and all that stuff. But I, I think the, there's a lost art of serendipity that I'm hoping that we get back. Michelle Wolkoff and Jeff Norton speaking with me at Content London this week, where I also caught up with Banerjee's James Townley, Nevis's Annie Fernandez and OutTV's Philip Webb. James, we spoke here last year um, when Unscripted was very much on the agenda, but it's been given a, a much greater prominence this year, a reflection on our part and the industries of the increasingly core role, factual, entertainment and formats play. Um, so what's your take on the market right now and what's been your focus at Content London this year? I think, I think as a starting point for Content London, it, it's fantastic that, that Unscripted is getting that focal point uh, at the event and it's, it's quite clear with the, with the amount of sort of co-workers from Banerjee that have come in from outside the UK that have all come into this market. I think having that cross-spectrum of, of non-scripted and scripted so we can celebrate, essentially celebrate the content and also understand more from our colleagues and our friends, uh, that's something that's been an absolute highlight and obviously having that opportunity to see everyone again, make new friends and see those colleagues that you haven't seen for a while, uh, the sessions have been fantastic. Um, so I think having that opportunity is, is great. What are the shows that are top of mind for you at the moment? From a Banerjee point of view? Yes. Um, there are a few. I think from if we're looking at new shows, we're particularly excited about uh, a show from our team at Endemolshine Netherlands for RTL called Blow Up, which celebrates expertise. I think we're, all, we're always looking at celebrating expertise, whether it is MasterChef, Lego Masters, Interior Design Masters. This is about balloon-blowing experts. So if you're looking at putting uh, smiles on, on people's faces for the, the small kids and the bigger kids and that sort of four quad viewing, it's got that nostalgia, but it's also got that energy, that color, escapism to a point. Um, it appealed to 
to those Dutch viewers, and we're, we're, we're thrilled that it's now been commissioned in Australia, New Zealand, and Germany. Uh, that's definitely one. I think we've now got a great opportunity to launch new IP in Australia. In the past, our team at Endemolshine Australia have got a, a fantastic track record with catalog super brands like MasterChef, Big Brother, um, Lego Masters, Beauty and the Geek. But now, with the local streamers that sit with Channel 9 and Stan, there's that opportunity now to create new IP. And the first one of those from Endemolshine Australia is Love Triangle, which is a dating relationship format um, that is picking up internationally at the moment. So we're having quite a lot of active conversations with that in the market uh, this week. Uh, and then finally, I think we all, everyone seems to like singing. So singing, singing talent. Again, that element of escapism and nostalgia. Uh, the team at Remarkable in the UK uh, have just finished filming series two for Starstruck, um, which is coming at the beginning of next year. And there's some iconic performances across that. You're focusing on the new titles there, but let's yep. not forget the stalwarts, I suppose, yep. of the uh, the catalogue. Big Brother, you announced a sale there, the 65th, I think it was, yes. territory yesterday for that. And obviously one of the sort of themes that there's been throughout the industry this year, particularly in the UK, is this idea of, you know, the reboots. Big Brother's coming back on ITV, BBC's Resurrecting Survivor and Gladiators. Yep. TFN in France is also bringing back Star Academy. Yep. So, um, you know, Presumably you're in favour of that, obviously. I'm massively in favour. And, and I, think it's, it's, I think also it's really interesting when you, when you look at those, and there's always a conversation around reboots, and sometimes there's, there's a negative spin on put on it, but I couldn't disagree with that more. I think the amount of creative renewal that goes into any of these formats to, for them to be reinvented and reinvigorated in, in our current landscape, that's a huge amount. And I think what's really important is that, yes, we have those super brands, and like you say, with Survivor, with Big Brother, and... Star Academy did particularly well for TFR. That's great, but we must have that balance. We must have that balance of, of formats, of super brands, plus that new IP coming through. Because essentially, the creative industry that we're in, we know that there are so many ideas out there, and those ideas need to be given that opportunity. So again, like most things in life, it's about the balance. Annie, uh, you also joined us last year, so welcome back. You, you were sort of, I suppose, quite early on in the process of setting up Nevis at that point, having left Yellowbird, and, uh, which was once part of Zodiac, subsequently became part of Banerjee, but um, uh, you had a number of shows in, in, in development back then, so sort of tell me how things have progressed since you uh, established Nevis in, in 2020. Yes, we were very fortunate, or we were unfortunate to establish the company just before the COVID, but we were fortunate that we had our first show released. Uh, we produced for Denmark's radio, the public broadcaster in Denmark, we got a green light actually one year ago to develop it and we developed it in six months and we shot it from February to April and it was just released on DR on 14th of October and it was eight episodes. It's a short format crime show and it has young people in the main roles but what we learned is that the older audience also wanted to watch it, even though that it was originally made for a younger audience. So we are very happy that crime can work for both the younger and the older audience. And we have DR sales selling it outside Denmark, and they will start, they have started negotiations, and it will go out next year. And NRK, the Norwegian broadcaster, they were in early, and they will show it already in January. 
So it was great to be in production so quick, even though that we had the whole COVID situation. We were fortunate. And then, of course, we had, as you might know, the situation in Denmark with the, the great, you know, the unions. So that meant that everything stopped in Denmark for quite, I think, almost a year. But as we are also based in Stockholm, we focused developing the shows that we have Swedish series and were not so active, to be honest, in Denmark, apart from producing for DR. So we have a big film. We were supposed to only do series, but we got the opportunity to do a film. And that will be announced, I think, this month, uh, who will be our, our partner on that. And we also have the possibility to do a spin-off TV series. So it's been, uh, it's been better than I thought it would be, to be honest, uh, due to the whole, yeah, special situation in the pandemic. As you say, I mean, hard enough to launch a company during a pandemic. I mean, in some ways, I suppose, you know, Scandinavia remained more open than many territories. So you were able to, to continue producing. Um, but the situation that we've had in, in Denmark over the past year has really brought the business there to its knees, hasn't it? So, um, you know, just, just bring us up to speed with what's the sort of situation now between the, the streamers and, and the standoff between them and the Danish Producers Association. The Danish Producers Association tried to make a deal, but they, it ended up it couldn't work, so they were left out. So it was the streamers negotiating directly with the union and they did a deal with Viaplay and TV2, and they just announced, I think yesterday, that they now done a deal with Netflix. So of course we're all happy about that, but you know how long it takes to develop a, a fiction, you know, a drama series. So I think most producers, to be honest, in Denmark foresee a very difficult next year, because everything has been at a hole for more than a year. Uh, so I think next year will be a bit tough for many production companies in Denmark. But thankfully, you know, it's solved now, so we can start developing again uh, in Denmark as it's well. It's kind of indicative of, of, of a wider sort of debate we've seen across the industry of, you know, talent producers demanding kind of, you know, the right level of payment for, for the work that they do whilst the streamers are kind of booming. You know, that's something we've sort of seen across the industry, not just yeah. in Denmark, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And what we also did was we actually have a Danish writer working on a Swedish project because that's possible. We don't have the same issues in Sweden. And of course, we get a lot of people contacting us from Denmark, you know, you know, do you have any Swedish projects? Or, but hopefully that will, you know, the Danish writers can work on Danish projects again, which we are very happy to focus on that again as well. Yeah. Philip. Out TV's recently commissioned a new dating reality show hosted by Stormy Daniels, Correct. I believe. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what your focus is here at Content London? Um, it's called For the Love of Dilfs, which is uh, obviously not everybody's cup of tea, but uh, it is ours. And uh, I don't know, you know, we were looking around for our host and uh, Stormy Daniels was available and she gets us good press in the US or she gets us press. Not all of it good, I guess. Um, yeah. Just, just break down that title for us and explain what the show is actually about. Well, it's a, it's a dating show between himbos on one side and daddies on the other. So younger guys like older guys, it's a thing, you know, and uh, it's just exploring that. Set in a mansion, beautiful, looks amazing, yeah. 
And how is that kind of, you know, feeding into your overall kind of content development strategy? Can you sort of elaborate a little bit more on what you're doing in terms of originals and, and acquired content? Well, most of our content these days is originals. We focus, we focus primarily on that because we need worldwide rights and acquisitions are usually not available worldwide. So um, we're, you know, we are trying to develop internally most of our shows. We work with all independent producers, of course, we're willing to work with everybody. But um, we are having a new, we're sort of changing our focus a little bit now. We've done a lot of reality shows and a lot of dating shows, a lot of competition shows. We have Call Me Mother, which is a big show for us, which is a drag um, competition based around drag houses. Um, but we're trying to move our focus a little bit into drama and drama, sort of like, you know, web series, etc., starting out in short half hour drama series. So, yeah, we're sort of all over the place as a network, a little bit like myself. Um, you know, we, we, have no, we have no clearly defined. Um, uh, genre at all because we work across all genres and yeah we're pretty much into everything documentary everything out tv is the uh, canadian home of rupaul's drag race i mean that that show's been a huge global phenomenon and it seems that there's been you know a slew of kind of drag related programs that have followed that we've just had queens of the night here in the uk on itv recently uh, you know why do you think drag's become so popular in particular in recent years you know and it or I don't know, is it, is it reflective of television opening up a little bit and becoming a bit more representative? I think, yeah, yeah I think definitely it's, it's down to uh, TV opening up a little bit and being uh, more accepting of um, LGBTQ content. Um, I think drag's really accessible, you know, for anybody. It's, it's, a, it's based a lot around humor and around larger-than-life characters. I think it's very easy for anybody to watch. Um, some might say drag is saturated. I'm not. I'm not sure it is, but it's it's not it's not a it's not our primary or it's not our only focus. Let's put it that way. You know, we we are definitely looking for other reality formats and lifestyle programming. We have a great um, new show that we just released a couple of months back called X Rated, uh, X Rated New York City, which is about. Um, it's basically. It's sort of like Real Housewives, with, but with gay porn stars. And we've just recommissioned a second season of that. And also, sort of expanding the franchise somewhat, we're doing um, X-rated LA as well. So that should be shooting shortly too. But you also mentioned there that you're sort of um, doing less reality or moving more into scripted. And it's kind of an interesting move, given that you know, one of the central talking points here is, is the growth of unscripted within a universe, which I guess has been sort of dominated by drama in, in recent years? Well, let me say, I'm very excited actually that you are including um, Unscripted here because it's like, it is still gonna, you know, it remains a huge part of our business. We ha historically haven't done too much drama. It's expensive. You know, we are a relatively niche, well, we are a niche business and we're quite a small business. So um, even though we have a worldwide reach. Um, so drama, you know, it's either been on a smaller scale or, you know, and now we're just looking to expand it. We're also looking for co-production, you know. That, for me, feels like where a lot of our future may be, um, with, you know, sort of windowing, etc., where we're working with specific other broadcasters in um, territories outside of Canada. And, you know, we, we take a, a sort of a second window on something on the understanding that we can get it for the rest of the world, so. What are the challenges that you all foresee or the opportunities that you foresee looking ahead to 2023? Obviously, 
Uh, there's been plenty of talk about recession as well and the pressures that are being put on production budgets. So um, from where you're sat, what are the things you're concerned about? What are the ways in which you're looking to kind of uh, do things differently? I think the opportunities is, of course, that we still have a lot of streamers that are really keen, especially also on the Nordic market uh, territory. But I think the challenges are that they change budgets all the time. They change, you know, it's very unpredictable. And I think the advantages are that they are much more open to discuss working with public broadcasters or broadcasters in particular. So we can have, you know, a discussion about sharing windows, which is, I find is new to this when I had meetings at this market, that they're much more open to discuss that we could work together. And I think that's what we must do when times are challenging. We must find ways to, you know, collaborate more. So I, th I find that very um, interesting to have that opportunity. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about it. They're, they're, there are challenging times upon us. There have been challenging times in the past. And like you say, whether it's cost of living crisis, uh, inflation, obviously that consequent reduction in the budgets, from a Banerjee point of view, we're always really, really keen to retain, like Annie said, retain rights to, to what we are creating. Um, and, and then another area that is still is here now, but probably will only get worse, is, is sort of talent and, and that war on talent and how important talent is. I think it is it, it, it's very real. It's not, it's not going away in any shape or form. Um, and when we're looking at sort of maybe in the more in the direct content space, I think launching new shows, that opportunity for patience, it, it, hopefully that will be there and, and more of it. I think when at Banerjee, we're lucky, like, again, like Annie says, the streamers, the local broadcasters, but also those local streamers that are popping up all over, all over the globe is only opportunity. So I think with every challenge we have, I think for all of us, it's best to look to the, to the positive of where we are there. And I think that's something we can do as a community, not like the wider community, the community at Banerjee that has 120 labels where we saw the strength of it during COVID where we, we brought all the creatives together and they felt very much part of that team and sharing the learnings, etc. But one thing we try and do centrally is absolutely supporting the creative community, financially investing in the content uh, and the creativity and consequently them as individuals. So yes, challenges, but let, if we flip it to opportunities, I think it's, uh, it's much better. Yeah, I'd echo that. I think it's all about opportunity. We work really hard to give opportunities to sort of new program makers and um, people without a track record a lot of the time. You know, we'll sometimes pair them with like with production companies that have a little bit more experience or whatever. But we'll also work with them ourselves to try and um, bring talent forward. And, you know, again, that makes it more affordable for us. It allows us to do more programming, to serve our market a little bit more. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's always slightly different for us because we are very niche, so we have certain requirements of our program makers in the first place, that they be ideally LGBTQ or strong allies of our community. But it's, you know, I think it is all about growing and creating that network, yeah, of, of future producers and things like that. For us, that's where, where we are, yeah. I also think from our, from our experiences in the past as well, the, with a non-scripted hat on, the, the price point is lower than scripted. The, the speed to market from, from commission 
to production to transmission is much faster. There's going to be a need for that content when budgets have been reduced. So the opportunity for non-scripted is going to be undoubted. And, and we hear it more and more. We, we've hear, heard it quite a few times. You know, Mark Dun, uh, Mike Darnell was talking about it yesterday in his session. Kate Phillips from the BBC was talking about it. We're seeing it in that international space is, is high volume, low costs. Maybe take out the low cost because it cheapens it slightly. It's actually just the high volume. So you can get far more ROI or number of hours out for the reality element. So reality is always, it's, there's more and more. And we've seen that in our catalog, whether it is these super brands of, of Big Brother, but also new IP coming through where that, those volume series, we just had a launch of, of a show in, in France from Banerjee Productions France for uh, Double Verneuf called Les Cinquante. And it was an immediate 51 episodes straight away. Slightly unheard of, but it gave, it gave a huge amount of content to that channel and brought in that, that younger audience that probably wasn't there before. So, so that scalability, I think, is something that we work on quite a lot anyway with the nature of the super brand, but because of the space that Nonscript is in and the price point we're working within, it's far more adaptable to these challenging situations than maybe sometimes scripted is because there are some very, very big budgets being discussed there. A final thought from each of you in terms of what's the key message that you've taken away from, from Content London 2022? I hate that. I think ours are going to be the same. Um, it's co-pros yeah. windowing and, and how, yeah. more, uh, how much more open people are to that these days, you know, that other networks are. Yeah. I've had a lot of meeting with, with other networks this time rather than uh, producers and it's been really, really helpful to know that, that there are opportunities out there that we're not there just a few years ago. For me, actually, it's been a little bit going back in time to the old way of financing, uh, co-producing from you know a Nordic point of view with France, Germany, the UK, which I did when I was at Yellowbird, you know. And it's like there's much more openness. Of course, we've been co-producing all the time, but it's like now you can also combine with streamers, which I find really interesting that they're very open-minded to discuss if we could do that. So I had very good meeting on some projects specifically where we try to see if we can merge broadcasters and streamers. So we'll see if it uh, turns out to work. Yeah, I, I completely echo exactly what Philip and Annie say. I also think undoubtedly speaking to people in this industry face-to-face -face is always so much better. Um, getting everyone together, there are, you know, there are, like the question previously, the, the, the challenges that we're all facing are universal challenges. So being able to have those conversations directly are fantastic. Uh, and then coming back to the point that we talked about is, is that balance, that balance of content, that balance of creative renewal for pre-existing IP and also new IP. So there's that opportunity across the two to make sure that there's, there's chances for both sides of it because we, we do need new IP to come through to make sure they are become, we have the opportunity for the super brands of the future. James Townley, Annie Fernandez and Philip Webb speaking to me at Content London this week. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more coverage coming from the event on our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday and in the podcast next Friday. In the meantime, get up to speed with all the great stories that came out of the conference and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.